Hello, my wiggle worms. Welcome to episode 6 of the Slobcast. It's been a minute. This episode is brought to you by my mild case of insomnia. So, uh, apologies for the lapse in consistency on these episodes. On top of being busy and having basically no free time, I've been struggling to keep a positive mindset lately and feel like I've kind of stepped into a mental bear trap of sorts. But it's alright, we'll get through it. I initially intended this to be a weekly podcast, and I still aim to make one a week, but, you know, sometimes life tends to get in the way, and I'd rather release a better product with less consistency than try to half-ass something just for the sake of putting it out there. But this is actually the second time I'm recording this episode. I've tried it once before, and I was not pleased with the outcome at all, so hopefully it'll be better this time around. But hey, what do you do when you wake up at four in the morning? Can't go back to sleep? You do a fucking podcast, bucko. And the topic I wanted to talk about this week is quantum computers, which could easily turn into a snooze fest, so don't feel obligated to listen to this. But it's a topic that I have a very limited understanding of, so I wanted to do some research and see if I could get a general understanding of what sets these machines apart from classical computers and uh, speculate what kinds of breakthroughs for which this technology could serve as a catalyst. So, to understand how a quantum computer works, you first have to understand classical computing, which operates by storing information known as bits on uh, silicon transistors. Transistor is just a fancy word for a switch, basically. Um, These bits can be either a 1 for on or a 0 for off, which sounds basic, but in a system with millions or even billions of these transistors, you can do really impressive things, you know, build a website, uh, edit a video, check your social media, you know, um, lots of things you can do. However, where classical computing falls short is the ability to simulate nature and sort of deal with these ridiculously large numbers. Uh, In 1981, at a physics of computing conference at MIT, Richard Feynman asked, can we use quantum mechanics to make better computers? Um, He wasn't the first one to come up with this idea, but he was the first one to sort of coin the term quantum computing, if you will. And the problem with trying to simulate physics with a computer is that you also have to simulate subatomic particles. And that's something that requires more variables than any human or classical computer can keep up with. You know, for example, if you wanted to calculate, say, two variables to describe 30 particles, those two variables being energy and momentum, you would need to account for 2 to the power of 30, which is roughly a billion different variables. Which, you know, classical computers have the power to do this, but if you change that number of particles from 30 to 100, you would increase to 2 to the power of 100 variables, which is a 1 followed by 30 zeros, which is a number that's too big for a computer to handle. You know, that would make your average computer melt, basically. (laughs) So that's where quantum computers come in. Um, They exploit these quirks of subatomic particles known as superposition and quantum entanglement to complete processes exponentially faster, all while using less energy than a classical computer. So uh, superposition is a phenomenon in which particles exist in all possible states simultaneously. Uh, If you're interested in a more detailed description of this, you can check out the double slit experiment if you are unfamiliar with that. But it basically showed us that if you shoot a photon through either one slit or another and you have a backboard behind it, uh, the data will show that it appears as though that photon passes through both slits at once. 
the um, other quirk that gets exploited is known as um, quantum entanglement, which is the ability for entangled particles to share information instantly over vast distances. So the way to describe um, these superposed states of entangled particles is by a wave function that has accounted for every possibility of outcomes for those two particles. So let's say you want to measure the spin of one particle that is entangled with another particle across the galaxy, let's say. And let's say that it's oriented up. And when you measure that, what happens is it changes the entangled particle to be the opposite. Now, before you measure it, they exist in a state of up and down simultaneously, which, you know, again, I'm kind of reiterating stuff that I've already said. So when you measure one of those particles, you are essentially collapsing that wave function so that it, it no longer describes that system because you've observed it, which forces it to go from that superposition state to an actual defined state, like up or down, instead of being up and down at the same time. It's a weird conundrum. But uh, let me let me try to give you an example. So think of like two Christmas presents. Now, this will be a rough analogy, but stick with me. So imagine those presents are an entangled pair of subatomic particles, and you can put them on opposite ends of the universe if you want to. And let's say that each present could contain either a packet of ketchup or a $100 bill. Um, quantum entanglement basically shows us that opening up one present and revealing its contents would immediately change the contents of the other present to be the exact opposite. Um, how does this happen, you might ask? Well, your guess is as good as anyone else's because nobody has a fucking clue. However, that doesn't stop us from exploiting it and using it in quantum computing. So, without going into a bunch of math to explain how this works, you know, I'm too dumb to understand any of that. Uh, quantum computers encode information onto quantum particles, which manipulates them and computes via that process. As opposed to classical bits, uh, quantum computing uses qubits, which can be in a superposition of one, zero, or both. Which might not sound very impressive, but the ability to be both on and off simultaneously allows for much faster um, calculations of very complex problems. So take, for example, virtual deck of cards. With a classical computer, you could write a search algorithm that finds the queen of hearts, but it would have to check each card in the deck individually until it found the queen of hearts, which could obviously be very time-consuming. Quantum computing, on the other hand, allows multiple cards to be checked in parallel, which obviously greatly reduces the amount of time it takes to find the queen of hearts. In fact, if you have enough qubits in your system, you could always find the Queen of Hearts on the first try because um, all 52 cards would be observed simultaneously. So now obviously there are bigger problems than finding a particular card that can be solved with quantum computers. So why is it useful you might ask? You know this technology can be used in just about any field imaginable. You know medical scientists could perform virtual experiments to find vaccinations for disease at a fraction of the cost and time that it would take to do it by other means. Um, scientists at Harvard have found that quantum computers will allow us to map DNA proteins 
similar to how we map genes today. Um, Volkswagen is working on technology that uses quantum computing to alert drivers of traffic jams 45 minutes before they take place. You know, essentially every area of human endeavor could be optimized with the use of this quantum computing stuff. And now obviously, you know, this could be seen as exciting and equally terrifying. You know, it's, it's kind of like we're cavemen who managed to crawl our way into the cockpit of an F-18 and we're sitting there bashing the fucking controls with a wooden club trying to demystify this weird phenomenon. But one of the big concerns about quantum computing is the effect that it will have on encryption. Um, encryption is basically uh, the factorization of large numbers. It's, it's how we encrypt data on classical computers because this is a very time-consuming task on a classical computer. Um, encryption works by generating two keys, one of which is public, which consists of a product of two large prime numbers and a private key, which consists of the two prime numbers themselves, which are used to decrypt the message. Um, quantum computers will be able to handle these large numbers with much more ease and significantly less time, which puts every bit of encrypted data into jeopardy. You know, you don't have to be a genius to imagine the impact that this technology could have on national security or stock markets or anything like that. Not to mention, I'm sure there are a few savvy marketing execs who can't wait to get their hands on one of these and put uh, massive amounts of customer data into it, trying to find a way to get you to open up that wallet and spend some money because that's what life's all about, right? And, you know, there's another scenario I could see playing out, which probably borders on tinfoil hat territory, but imagine there's a time when humans are able to integrate this technology into their brain somehow. It sounds ridiculous, but there are people working on this right now. Now, imagine the cost of this process to be somewhere around several hundred thousand dollars. Um, that's just a guess. I don't know what that would cost, but next thing you know, you're living in a dystopia where all the rich are essentially omnipotent gods and choose to enslave the rest of us who can't afford the Apple iBrain. It's kind of ridiculous, I know, but it's not like humanity has given me a reason to think that it wouldn't happen. Not to mention, you know, you add machine learning into this quantum computing revolution and gets even more scary because the only thing worse than rich people overlords has got to be robot overlords, am I right? So pick your poison, humanity. Look at the bright side. If it does happen, it'll be the most efficient genocide that will ever take place. So, while I was researching this, I found that I had some uh, misconceptions about quantum computers. While they're much faster than classical computers, they're not supposed to be a replacement for them. Um, classical and quantum computers are always going to have to work hand-in-hand -hand because the data being processed is going to have to be converted into a language that humans can interpret. Um, also, quantum computers aren't good at solving every single problem they are good at solving very specific problems that require very precise uh, simulation of nature. Like, uh, you know, simulating what happens if you throw some molecules together, you know, what kind of chemical reaction will take place. Or maybe you want to simulate the Big Bang or something, um, but you're not going to use it to, you know, play video games. The quantum computers are fundamentally different from classical computers in that they use Mother Nature to encode information. And it's it's really trippy to me that nature 
calculates using quantum mechanics. And it's even more trippy that there are people trying to decrypt and exploit this process for our own gain. And that's the paradigm shift that physicists like Richard Feynman were advocating in the early 80s. Because people didn't see processes like photosynthesis as a quantum mechanical calculation of nature. Um, you know, it's, it's more than just sunlight plus water plus CO2 equals oxygen. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's very, very complex stuff. And I'm just glad that there are smarter people than me trying to figure this shit out. Um, each year, IBM does something that's called a 5 and 5, where they basically try to predict uh, five new technologies that are going to rapidly change the world in the next five years. And this year, in 2018, they um, listed quantum computing in their 5 and 5. And uh, they listed some of the challenges that face us today. And one of those was that advancing quantum computing will require understanding of the technology to go beyond the scientific community. We kind of have to open up this uh, quantum computing curriculum and education that is somewhat lacking today. So um, if you're interested in this, if you want to learn more, there's all kinds of TED Talks about this stuff. Um, there's also something called Project Q, which is an open source software that simulates uh, quantum circuits and kind of allows people to get used to quantum computing. Um, you can check that out. IBM also has uh, some kind of quantum simulation uh, open source website. I'm not sure what that is. I'll, I'll link all this stuff in the show notes, though, and any relevant information if you want to do some further reading on this. Well, guys, that's about all I got this week. I'm sure you're tired of listening to my sleepy-ass mumble into this microphone. Um, I had reached out to a couple of people who actually work in quantum computing for an interview, but obviously... Nobody has time for a fucking bozo who has a podcast with like three listeners to come on without being paid. So maybe in the future I can get some some stupid science bitches on this show. But uh, for right now, it's just going to be me and whoever I can fucking trick into getting on here. But hey, if you stuck through this boring ass episode and listened to my horse ass voice for 13 minutes, then I appreciate the fuck out of you and I will catch you on the next episode. Thank you.